0: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and being much more deeply in touch with our own humanity. This is a supplemental episode. It's a chat with Tracy Borman on the private lives of the tutors. And this was from the 2019 tutor summit. So again, I think I said a couple of weeks ago, I have all of these talks and hours and hours worth of interviews that I'm going to start releasing here on the feed. So I hope you enjoy this with Tracy Borman. It was a real joy for me to speak with her um and she was so generous with her time and I really learned a lot and I hope you do too so enjoy hello and welcome the very first speaker today needs no introduction but I'm going to share her biography with you anyway Tracy Borman uh studied and taught history at the University of Hull and was awarded a PhD in 1997 She went on to a successful career in heritage and has worked for a range of historic properties and national heritage organizations, including the Heritage Lottery Fund, National Archives, and English Heritage. She is now Chief Executive of the Heritage Education Trust, a charity that encourages children to visit and learn from historic properties through the Sanford Award scheme. She's also the Joint Chief Curator for Historic Royal Palaces the charity that manages Hampton Court Palace, the Tower of London, Kensington Palace, Kew Palace, the Banqueting House, Whitehall, and Hillsborough Castle. She often appears in television and radio, and she's a regular contributor to history magazines, notably BBC History. She gives talks on her books all across the country. And I've got links here on this page where you can learn more about her and visit one of her talks. So I am thrilled that she is here sharing with us about the private lives of the tutors. Welcome to Tracy Borman. Perfect. Well, I'll just start by welcoming you and thanking you for being part of this event that we do. And it's such a thrill to have you here and to have you um, able to share your knowledge and, and be so generous with your time. No, so, well- yeah. so your your whole book on the private lives of the tutors, I wanted to ask you about um, privacy in general. And I thought that was such an interesting concept, the the concept of privacy. And I you had a whole lot about the, the idea of being in separate chambers, even for the king and queen, was a relatively new kind of idea. And can you talk a little bit about what privacy meant, not just in the court, but for people in
1: general? Yeah, I think um, we need to be careful with the use of the word privacy for the royals, because in a sense, um it was very different to what we might expect today so really the king and queen would never have been fully alone or incredibly rarely always attended by a veritable army of servants friends henry viii filled his private apartments with 50 people and that was considered private so um i think we shouldn't kind of think that privacy meant you know solitude and having quiet time actually what it meant was being away from the public court and that Mm -hmm. was where the privilege lay and that's why getting access to those private apartments was so thrilling for the Tudor courtiers. it meant that you were high in favour if you stepped over that hallowed threshold and were able to attend or visit the king and queen in private that really meant something. The idea of um,
0: of privacy, but you also then talk about a lot of the different sorts of domestic things that we don't necessarily think of when we think about the tutors and we think about this kind of court life. Um, like you had this great story about Henry the Seventh, and we often think about him as being this very dour kind of man, but he really liked card games and he yeah. enjoyed tennis. Can you tell
1: me a little bit about yeah. that? I think that's what surprised me most um, about this book is that, sorry, my cat is now on the table, <laughs> is that um, when you look at the private lives of the Tudors, every single one of the kings and queens um, change quite dramatically when you look at their real selves in private. Mm. And actually, Henry VII is a shining example of that. As you say, you tend to see him as kind of a bit of a miser, a bit dour, dare I say, a little bit dull. But mm. in private he was a bit of a party animal. He loved to host these extravagant gatherings in his private apartments. He had uh, professional tennis coaches on his accounts to help him improve his game. Uh, he invited all sorts to uh, to kind of feast and enjoy his hospitality in privates. Um, and he spent lavishly on his wardrobe, as we can tell from his accounts. It was quite astonishing um 3 million pounds or the equivalent in the first 2 years he lavished on his wardrobe so completely different view of mm-hmm. henry the 7th soon began to emerge for me i think in a way he was the most surprising of the tudors in private for me
0: yeah and you also talked a little bit about the clothing how it was it was almost a necessity and also the the amount
1: of money he spent on his clothing changed throughout his reign mm-hmm. It did. And it was fascinating to trace when he's spending the most on clothes. And that's always when he's feeling under threat from Mm -hmm. rival claimants, the so-called pretenders to the throne. Suddenly he's spending a lot on clothes again because he feels the need to project his majesty You must remember, he's just the first Tudor king. The Tudors aren't expected to survive. Um, We know them now as probably our greatest dynasty, but nobody thought they were going to stay around. And so Henry has to really try hard to safeguard his image, his dynasty, to convince people that really he deserves to be king. Mm, mm-hmm.
0: And it wasn't even just clothing, right? It was like the wall hangings and you talk about a particular tapestry that he probably saw when he was in exile. And yeah. then,
1: yeah, all of that is everything had meaning, um, not just for Henry VII, but in particular, I think, for him. So he would surround himself with the most lavish furnishings. He actually made sure to employ the same tailor who had served Edward Fourth um the the popular Yorkist king, in order to sort of emphasize the continuity. you know, we've just got another natural king on the throne, has every right to be there. everything had significance. Yeah. Didn't he also do something similar with educating his children
0: use some of the Yorkists uh, teachers?
1: Exactly, which was really important to him. And of course, his wife was a Yorkist, to be fair, Elizabeth of York, of course. Um, but I think it was just this sense of, you know, there's nothing to see here. It's just a natural succession from one um, dynasty to the next. Um all very legitimate. uh, But of course, his claim was far from that. He was Mm -hmm. descended from an illegitimate line. Many saw him as a usurper. So he constantly had to do this sort of PR campaign, really, to convince people that he had every right to be there.
0: Yeah. And it's almost like he he won by right of conquest, almost more so than, like, what did he think about? What do we know about sort of that, what he was doing with that in his mind? And Uh how he felt
1: Yeah, I mean, he gave little away in in terms of his recorded sayings or, or what he wrote. I mean, it's perhaps not that surprising that he doesn't actually confide much insecurity in what he says. But I think we really sense that from how he spends his money, how he tries to really create this invincible kingly image that was very far removed from how he was in private, which is just surrounded by a very very small number of intimates because he didn't trust people um he didn't like to show many people his vulnerability so in contrast to henry the eighth who had as i mentioned 50 people attending him in private there were probably just less than 10 for henry because mm-hmm. he just didn't like to give too much away about his real self speaking of private what do you think
0: about his marriage with Elizabeth of York, do you, do you, there's certain sometimes historical novelists tend to make things of that, maybe not that they weren't so
1: happy, but what yeah. do you think the truth was? I think it's quite um, surprising. There is every reason for them not to be happy. They're from rival houses, York and Lancaster, and yet there does seem to be a genuine affection that, that mm-hmm between them, It was a very successful marriage, certainly dynastically. And Elizabeth literally delivered as a royal wife, uh, filling the royal nursery. But I do think um, there was a deep respect, even a love between them. And you just have to look at Henry's reaction to her death to know that certainly he esteemed her and he had to retreat into his private apartments for many weeks. He was so grief stricken. Um, and, mm-hmm. and that's, I think that's real. You know, you do get a sense of, of the genuine affection that existed between them. Mm. Yeah. Uh, it, I also,
0: um, let me see, I want to go back to, um, I I love that picture of them kind of coming together, even despite the problems of their families and just saying like, okay, we're
1: going to make this work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, me too. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I mean, on paper, it shouldn't have worked. It was just a political marriage. You know, even if they were doing their duty, they probably didn't enjoy it, but you do get the sense, as I say, that um, both of them were genuinely fond um, of each other, which, which is actually quite, it's probably one of the best love stories of the Tudor age. Not that there's all, all that much to compare it to, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you also talked
0: about, um, oh, I have a little note here that you don't seem to like Charles Brandon very much. You have a bit in your talking about Henry when he was young and his friends. Yeah. Uh, and you talked a little bit about Charles Brandon and his his marital er, issues and with his yeah the aunt and the cousin and I thought it was interesting because there's two different people talking about Charles Brandon at this Tudor summit one of them is Tony Riches who has this new novel out and then the other one's Sarah Bryson with uh, the the, and yeah and it's interesting because I I read that and I was like hmm
1: I'd like to see this other perspective of of Charles (laughs) Brandon (laughs) I think, um, do you know, it's it's funny you pick that up because actually I did end up liking Charles um, quite a lot. I think he's a rogue, though. You know, he leads Henry astray in his early days. He's not exactly a great role model in terms of marriage and relationships. You mentioned the scandal with the aunt and the, you know, the young ward that he wanted to marry. Despite that though, he's so charismatic and you can see why Henry is drawn to him. And he's almost like the elder brother that Henry never had because he doesn't really know Arthur that well, Henry. um, And he doesn't have that much in common. They're very, Arthur is raised to be king. So he can't be as carefree as Henry. Whereas Charles Brandon has none of those responsibilities. And you just get the feeling that it's a meeting of minds with those two. So I did, I did like Charles, I think, not a great influence, um, but certainly was an outlet for Henry's wilder side, I think. Yeah, yeah.
0: And you talked a little bit about Henry and playing uh, playing dominoes and, and the different things that he would do, um, and I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about how he, what he would have done in his private
1: space for recreation and for fun. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, that's exactly those are the key words with Henry VIII, because he saw his private space as, you know, his place of entertainment. And that's why he filled it. He had the largest number of staff in his privy chamber of all the Tudors. So 50, that's quite a lot of people to be constantly in your presence when you're supposedly off duty, but he saw it as entertainment he would play cards uh he would he would take most of his meals in private um he loved to drink, he loved to chat um and it was mainly male company actually because this was very much the arena for henry's friends um and mm. sort of and if you're a king you're you're attended by male attendants, whereas a queen you know is female, so it's not that he's having flirtations and liaisons in private. In fact, most of those are played out in public, ironically, it's more about the male friendships. And, you know, shameless plug for the latest book, but my, my new book on Henry VIII and the men who made him really does give a very different perspective of him. It stops us obsessing, I hope, with the six wives, interesting though they are, and makes us realize that actually there's a whole depth to Henry that we don't usually see in terms of his friendships with men. And how they influenced him. Yeah,
0: yeah. And he was he.
1: Well, I'd like you for you to talk
0: a little bit about just this myth that people often have of him as as the tyrant. And I think people kind of understand that that's just a caricature. But he, he was really, in a lot of ways, he was he was really kind of insecure and and very. Can you talk a little bit about
1: that? and uh, Yeah, I I really hope to do some myth busting with with, um, the book. I'm not the first historian to do it by any means, but I don't think he was just that one dimensional monster, tyrant. You have to look at where that behavior is coming from. And partly he was very indulged in his youth as the spare heir, so he was allowed to just follow his own will and, and pastimes to a greater extent than his brother. But he was increasingly insecure and paranoid and not without reason. People like the Duke of Buckingham had been plotting against him uh, earlier in the reign. He's also a man plagued by ill health. And from that comes a lot of insecurity because he's having to retire from his duties a lot of the time as the reign progresses. He, of course, feels that he doesn't know quite so much what's going on. He doesn't have such a grip on affairs. That's going to make you feel actually quite vulnerable. And I think that's the side to Henry that you definitely see in his later years and just how manipulated he is by the men around him. That's what astonished me and how easy it is to pull the wall yeah. over his eyes. Um, take Thomas Cromwell, for example. He was absolutely yeah. stitched up by the Duke of Norfolk and Stephen Gardiner, who kind of hinted to Henry that Cromwell was plotting treason. I mean, it's ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. Um, and if Henry had been a in his rational mind, he'd have seen that. But he was paranoid and he was suspicious and fickle by this stage. And he allowed himself to be led by by these these men who, you know, ultimately did away with Thomas Cromwell, and Henry soon bitterly regretted it. He realised what he'd done. And they almost got Catherine Parr, too, but they did. I mean- thank goodness they didn't but yeah absolutely very very close you know it said that it's only thanks to um you know them accidentally dropping the the order for her arrest and her discovering it and then she got to henry first and and did that brilliant speech about you know sorry i'm just a a silly woman i shouldn't be dabbling in all of this you know pity she had to say that but it kind of got her out of trouble and um she lived to fight another day but it was a vicious world
0: Yeah, yeah. I'd like for you to tell me a little bit about Thomas Cromwell, because you've written about him as well. And there seems to be a lot more interest in him again now, too. So what what about him do you love?
1: I love his irreverence more than anything else. I think how he got on in life, um, not just for Henry, but in his early career, is he kind of had this cheekiness, if you like. He was um, not afraid to say to great figures of authority what he actually thought and to maybe poke fun a little bit, to use humour. He was said to make even his enemies laugh. He was very, very cheeky. And I just love that quality because Henry is surrounded by sycophants and flatterers, so you can imagine what a breath of fresh air Cromwell is when he arrives and and he just tells Henry what he thinks and um he takes he, he makes fun of um other men in henry's entourage and you know it's it's a bit of a game to him he it, you get the feeling he doesn't take it too seriously in terms of his the critics that he has to face up to. Um, And Henry really respects him for it. I think Henry does have bullying tendencies. And of course, bullies always respect uh, being stood up to, and that's exactly what Cromwell does. But I think as well Cromwell's genius is about him recognizing that even these great figures, even kings, and he meets the Pope once, they're still human beings. And he finds out what makes them tick and what their weaknesses are and how he can just get them what they want and that's what he's brilliant at.
0: Yeah, that's really
1: great. He, there's uh, it's
0: it's neat to see such an interest in these different people. They become popular for a bit because of books and movies, and it's neat exactly. to see people having their like day in the sun. And and yeah, uh,
1: completely. What, what do you think about his portrayal in Wolf Hall? Oh, I love it. I love it. And in fact, it was Wolf Hall that inspired me to write the nonfiction biography, because I thought, well, this is an altogether different Cromwell to the one we see in the history books. Which one is correct? And um, the more I researched Cromwell, the more I thought, actually, Hilary Mantel has nailed it. Um, And I think she's got closer to the real Cromwell than the historians who in the past have depicted him more as a villain and as very cynical and um, just using uh, the reformation for political gain. I don't think any of that was true. And I think Hilary Mantel gets across his charisma, which he must have had to Mm -hmm. engage Henry and to stay in his favor for so long. Yeah, yeah. So moving
0: on and and just talking a little bit about um, the other side with Elizabeth, yeah, I I found it so interesting Um I've been really interested in John Dee and you wrote about John Dee uh, a lot as well. If you could share with me a little bit about her interest in alchemy oh. and because that's something you don't often hear about. And yet. Yeah, if you can
1: tell me a little bit about that, I would it's love It's astonishing, isn't it? You kind of think all of this kind of secret dealings were were going on and isn't it amazing um that elizabeth had this whole interest in in kind of the occult and astronomy and alchemy trying to find the elixir of Of everlasting youth Um, and John Dee definitely helped her in all of that Um, and so um, they it was said that they had secret rooms at Hampton Court where they would practice alchemy and of course this is at a time when the Reformation is you know in full swing it's um, a lot of those sort of beliefs are seen as borderline heresy and so Elizabeth's taking quite a risk by dabbling in all of this kind of thing and you do think it's tied as well and certainly I've got a sense it's it's tied up with her very keen sense that she's aging and that she's you know she needs to secure her dynasty she hates any sign that she's growing at all older or more frail and so you, there's a sort of underlying desperation to this as well as a genuine I think fascination in the arts. I love how much she consults Dee and so she consults him about um the the most opposite date for her coronation for example and and things like that so quite big decisions she Mm -hmm. assigns to Dee her you know astrologer mathematician um mystic you know it's it's quite extraordinary but it's all bound up in one for for Elizabeth. I think though if I may share my favorite fact about John Dee it's that um less well known is that he was also a spy for Elizabeth Um, and uh, she sent him on various missions overseas and he wrote back in code and we still have the letters that he sent back in code and his code name was 007 and I just that is just so priceless
0: so (laughs) So long
1: way Ian Fleming got to know about that for James Bond I think (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah the original 007 exactly
0: it's so interesting because he was kind of the last in that line of before the Enlightenment when science and the occult were were one, where you could have the largest library in, in England or in Europe even. I Wasn't it in Europe that it has, he had the largest
1: Actually, library? Europe, yes, the, and, one source, yeah. yeah.
0: And you still have a conjuring
1: table. Yes, I know. I love that. It's a, it's a kind of melting pot of different ideas, approaches, beliefs, it's, it's very much, as you say, this transitional period where it's still okay to kind of believe all of that while still being a really well-respected scholar and academic. Um, it's what a time. It's, yeah. it's so fascinating.
0: In some ways, it's almost like what we're coming full circle today with holistic health and people, yeah. you know, maybe not necessarily thinking that science has all of the answers all the time and that there's...
1: Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. And I encountered a lot of that when I wrote my book on witches and the witch hunts in the early 17th century and just how much of that and those beliefs um, are sort of coming full circle. So we're not seeing witches as being evil anymore. There's a whole white witch movement and, and wicker and all of that. I think history does kind of repeat itself and go in circles, doesn't it? A lot of the time. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, well, it's one of the things that makes this period so fascinating, too, is that it's this sort of transition into the modern world. And yet in so many ways, works, the, the idea of information being freely available and, and nobody being able to control it in fake news. I mean, that's like
1: the printing press. and Isn't it just? Absolutely. Yeah. Everything's so relevant. Um, At at the moment in particular, it feels, um, in a way, witch hunts have never gone away. You just have to look at kind of modern day politics. Um, But as you say, fake news, PR, it's all there in the Tudor period. Yeah.
0: Well, you mentioned PR. Can you talk to me a little bit about the the Tudors were masters at propaganda?
1: masters i think nobody more so than elizabeth actually henry was pretty good and henry the 7th her grandfather was but elizabeth wow you've got it covered on all bases with elizabeth so um in terms of projecting her own image she is fantastic at it through portraiture which admittedly they'd all used But she has almost a kind of standard portrait, an accepted portrait, which is the mask of youth. And she never ages. In fact, she probably gets younger as the Mm -hmm. portraits go on. But she's also brilliant at showing herself to her people, the magnificent progresses. She's a great speech maker. Um, She knows the sort of language to use that's really gonna connect with people. So the way she constantly refers to herself as, as married to England. And that is a stroke of genius because as well as making the people feel loved because she calls them her children, um, it also comes silences those who are just pressuring her to marry. And it's like, it's a great answer. Well, who better to marry than England? I'm married to my kingdom. And you know, I think she is just actually a genius at PR. And yet it's interesting because that whole idea of seeing England, well, not necessarily being married, but she got some of that from Mary's speech at the Guildhall, no? Yes. She learned a lot from her half-sister. And I think poor old Mary is much maligned. um, And yet um, a lot of what Elizabeth learned from her was what not to do, I think, admittedly. Don't marry a foreigner for example, against the wishes of your people. Don't be too dogmatic Um, in issues of religion. You know, she famously, well, she's often misquoted as saying she's not going to make windows into men's souls. But that was the sense of it for Elizabeth. Um, She was much more pragmatic. But she had really, really benefited from seeing how her sister did it. And as I say, in a way, it was a kind of negative example But it was such a learning experience for Elizabeth. I think arguably she wouldn't have been as successful if she hadn't had that training for those five years when her sister was on the throne.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, how do you feel? Just you talked about a little bit of myth busting with Henry in your book. Um, How do you feel about Mary in in general? Do you? Yeah.
1: Yes. I really grew to like Mary quite a lot writing The Private Lives. I think like her grandfather, Henry VII, um, she was much more fun in private to that reputation in public. She loved a party in her private apartments. On one occasion, drinking so much that the Spanish ambassador was scandalised. You know, he wrote back about it, you know, how, how much the Queen had drunk that evening. She had a jester she liked to gamble. There's a whole other different side to Mary. and She is certainly a lady of passion. Obviously, she fell madly in love with Philip II, having just seen his portrait. Um, but there's an awful lot to like about her. And I do really warm to her through her attitude to her um, then infant half-sister, Elizabeth. When Anne Boleyn had been executed and Mary really took pity on Elizabeth. She had every reason to resent this little girl because of what her mother had done to Mary's own mother Catherine and yet she felt sorry for her and she actually tried to restore Elizabeth to their father's favour and so I think Mary was at heart a very good woman if that's not too simplistic to say. Of course Her reign is known as a brutal time. She herself is referred to as Bloody Mary for good reason. But what lay behind her actions and uh, and the Protestant burnings was an absolute burning faith. Uh, an intense piety. She's not doing it to just quell her opponents. She really believes that these people um, are damned, that, you know, she's she's trying to get them to recant. I'm not making an apology for what she did with the Protestant burnings, but it came from a place of genuine belief.
0: Yeah, and certainly if, if you see something, they saw it as like a cancer
1: on society, right? If you see something like that, you have to totally. cut it out. So it doesn't yeah, ups- you have to act. You can't just she didn't want her, her people to to be damned and to, you know, suffer um and and to to really um carry on on the wrong path. She wanted to convert people, to bring them to what she saw as as the right path. Mm-hmm. Admittedly, she perhaps didn't do it in the right way, but that was the age. And that's how you dealt with these things.
0: Yeah. And certainly Elizabeth wasn't completely clean with the way she treated Jesuits
1: and oh no 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 she's had a much a sort of less press over that though you're right um and uh it's all, all the focus has been on Mary but Elizabeth did not shy away from brutality when it was required and increasingly uh, as her reign progressed and she was feeling insecure with threats from Mary Queen of Scots and uh the hints of another armada yeah absolutely her regime came became increasingly brutal
0: wasn't that the period when torture was used the most of any period
1: in english history well it's Mm -hmm. recorded yeah it's it's certainly well recorded in elizabeth's reign i think the thing is with torture it probably went on at a similar level for quite a lot of the Tudor period Um, but it was tended to be not recorded all that much so in my day job as um, Joint Chief Curator of Historic Royal Palaces I talk about this a lot in the context of the Tower because the Tower of London is seen as a place of torture and execution in fact we have hardly any records of torture there 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 are only a sort of handful but that doesn't mean to say it didn't happen it happened under the radar I think sure yeah and then well that actually
0: brings me to uh we can i can ask you about your day job what yeah.
1: you have a wonderful job. day job <laughs> very lucky my day and- job uh so yeah um at at the palaces at historical palaces i uh spend my time mostly at hampton court palace and um i sit in a Tudor part of the palace. Of course, there are two parts to it, the Baroque and the Tudor. I am in Edward VI's former nursery. That's now the curator's office. So it's not bad. I can't say it's still decked out as it would have been. But my role at um, historical Palaces as Joint Chief Curator is with Lucy Worsley to manage the curator's team and we are really like the historians for the palaces. We research the stories, we give talks, um, we do media work, um, we help with exhibitions. It's incredibly exciting and of course the best bit of the job for me is going in the spaces that not many other people get to see so that go lifting up the signs that say private and just walking on through I absolutely love that I have to share with you though that um probably nine out of ten of those spaces are really boring and there's something like a broom cupboard and it's not that exciting but you just occasionally get a real gem that isn't open to the public and that's what makes my my job incredibly exciting Yeah. And tell me about these new chambers that are going to be opening up. Well, that is the most exciting thing. I very much hope. um, We're still working out how we can do it. But the one question that's asked perhaps more than any other at Hampton Court is where is Henry VIII's bedroom? And until recently, visitors have been told, well, it doesn't exist when... William and Mary came in, in the late 17th century, they demolished half the Tudor palace, including that. In fact, it does exist. It's the Bain Tower. It's a a luxurious suite of private lodgings that Henry built later on in his reign. And it included a bedroom, bathroom, jewel house, Mm. study. It was this luxurious private apartment. And um, we, through a re-examination of building accounts, realized that we do have it. Actually, what we thought was just courtier's lodgings was Henry's private apartments. So what I am leading a project now to do is to open those up, because can you imagine the thrill and the excitement? I hope it's not just me who is excited by this fact. Um, And and just let the public in and let them stand in the spot where so much of history unfolded. Of course, the sad thing is that those rooms have changed a great deal. Henry Henry wouldn't recognize them today. Over the centuries, and particularly in the 18th century, they've been subdivided, floor levels have changed, but I still think the magic of taking people into the space that was Henry's bedroom, his private world is second to none. It's probably the biggest discovery that's been made in, in a very, very long time in terms of Tudor spaces. So I'm desperate to open them up to the public yeah and how how long do you think it'll be before they're opened so we're we're asking for a bit of patience um it's yeah. gonna be it's, it's gonna be i would say at least four to five years because um what we need to do uh, at the moment um it's things like fire escapes the, the rooms aren't necessarily set up as visitor spaces sure. um so it's going to take and because of course it's in rather a significant building you can't just make alterations overnight right. It'll take a lot of perm- permissions, a lot of work. I'm sharing this news with you very, very early in the process, um, but it's going to be worth the wait, I think. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. That's so exciting. I should yeah. say as well that one of the spaces that adjoins Henry's bedroom and that we do know is, um, exactly what happened in that room is the room where Jane Seymour gave birth to the future Edward VI and then where she, where she died and again it's close to the public uh, but as part of this program we really hope to to open that up too because how thrilling would that be?
0: So exciting
1: yeah there's such a magic
0: to being in those spaces isn't it? And it it's interesting. I, I'm from the u s, from Pennsylvania, and it's not nearly as cool as what you do. But my very first job when I was fifteen years old, I had a weekend job as a docent at a Revolutionary War Museum. Oh wow. And- yeah and it was a guy who had he was actually irish and he'd been adjutant general to george washington and we had his house from 1792 and the person who was the curator he had not studied curating with you he was extremely lax and he would sometimes say heather go down and close up the house for us and lock things up and and then you know bring the key and i would be down there by myself we didn't use gloves to he we had his traveling desk and all his medical instruments we didn't use gloves for any it was just really awful um but I remember standing in his medical office and we had his library and the, his desk and all of that. And I would be closing up the shutters and I, it was like you could feel them, right? There. Yes. And yeah. it's, it's almost like when you're in those spaces, you know, I think about Einstein and the theory of relativity and time is all relative and maybe it's all happening or I could
1: really get philosophical about that. Yeah. But it's all- Yeah, Absolutely. I totally get that. I totally get that. And when I get that feeling as well is when I'm on my own, Uh, in in the palaces whether it's Hampton Court early in the morning and there's this particular passage um, between the kitchens and the Great Hall that I get absolutely it feels like time has slipped and I almost wouldn't be surprised to see a Tudor courtier just passing me in in the corridor Um, and there's something incredibly special about having those places to yourself much as we love and welcome visitors if you happen to be in a historic space you just get that shivers down the spine moment don't you?
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: How much time do you think you get by yourself in um, those kind of places? To be fair, it's probably, you know, half an hour at either end of the day. It's not actually that much. Uh, tomorrow morning, however, I am going to be at the Tower of London before it gets light. I'm doing some filming there. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, that's going to be quite special. I might have a little bit more time before the film crew arrives and, uh, that's, that is particularly, you can absolutely sense whether you believe in ghosts or not, you can kind of sense history when you're walking around the tower, whether it, I quite like early mornings, um, not just sort of, you tend to think about, you know, being there after nightfall, but actually I, I think the very, very beginning of the day before the sunrise, uh, is actually really special.
0: Mm. Mm. That's amazing. Amazing. Yeah. So um, I'm just trying to think you've, you've been so generous here with your knowledge. What? Tell me about your books. I want to make sure, I mean, I'm sure people know who you are, but if anybody isn't sure about your books and what all they are, I want to give you plenty of time to, to share you. about your work <laughs> and where people can watch your shows and all of that kind of stuff.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Because I tend to forget all of that stuff. <laughs> Although I got in a plug for the latest book, which is, um, so yeah, my latest book, Henry VIII and the Men Who Made Them, him rather. Um, I am a Tudor historian, first and foremost, and so most of my non-fiction books are about the Tudor period, Um, Mm -hmm. although I have written about uh, the wife of William the Conqueror and George II's mistress, so I've kind of spanned the periods. I've written about the Tower of London, and my new book uh, for historical palaces is is about Kensington Palace, which is fascinating. as of last year, I've now gone into fiction, and okay. um, I'm writing a trilogy uh, based in the very, very early Stuart Court. So mm-hmm. think gunpowder plot, witch hunts, very, very dramatic time. Uh, so the first one was called The King's Witch. The second one is The Devil's Slave. I am literally handing in the copy edit tomorrow. <laughs> so it's a busy day tomorrow. Um, and so that's that's all good. So I think I've got I, you know what? I think it is 12 books now. I know I should know off the top of my head, but it's <laughs> it's you kind of live from one book to the next. Um, and then in terms of TV, thank you for mentioning that, because um, I've got a new series out on our screens pretty much any day now called Private Lives. So I, this was inspired. I did a series on the private lives of the Tudors, the book. This one is just six people from history and their private life. So from Adolf Hitler to Napoleon. It's quite a broad range and that's going to be out on the Yesterday Channel and the Smithsonian in the States. Um, mm. And I'm also, what I'm up to tomorrow, we're starting to film a new series about the Tower of London called Inside the Tower of London, uh, which will be broadcast later this year. So I'm, yeah, I've got lots of bits and bobs. I'll think of other things that I should have told you about, but I don't um, Do you sleep? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes. 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 You know, when my daughter likes me as well, you know, she's, um, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know what, and I'm sure you get this as well, uh, since having children, um, I, I have become so much more focused because the time you get when it's yours, you have to make the most of because uh, it's limited. And so that has probably made me more productive, I have to say.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I quite agree. I think back to all those evenings of just sitting on the couch yes. and thinking, what shall I do now? Oh, what? I don't know. We can. I can remember. <laughs> Let's just sit here and play a game of Candy Crush for an hour. Right? <laughs> I, I can't
1: actually remember those times anymore. <laughs> but I have to say, one of the great joys of my life, I don't know if you get Horrible Histories over there, but it's uh, seven o'clock in the UK every evening. My daughter and I sit down to watch Horrible Histories and it's just the biggest treat. Um, I don't make her watch it. She, you know, she genuinely loves it, <laughs> so yeah. it's fantastic. Oh, that's
0: fantastic. I love horrible history. Stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, if people want to find out more about you, you have a website which I, I shall link to as well. Yes, um, Norman.co.uk.
1: Yeah, indeed. So that's got all the events I'm doing. It's got my latest books, etc., yeah. etc. Um, and I'm also on Twitter and uh, yeah, and Instagram and and all of that kind of thing so yeah um there's ways ways to connect perfect perfect well thank you so
0: so much you I it's coming up on horrible histories time for you there oh, I don't...
1: oh good okay thank you for that otherwise I'd be in trouble for my daughter <laughs> she'd be in here telling me
0: uh-huh, there you go so we don't want to keep you from that um but you've just been so generous and I so appreciate your time
1: oh it's been such a delight talking to you thank you